Hey, good morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Romans chapter 5. Our text is verses 6 to 11. We're in the section of Romans where we're learning about the life that God has given to all believers in Jesus, to all those who are justified or declared righteous by faith in his name. And this passage that we're about to read speaks to us about the love of God and how it's experienced by believers. So we're going to start, I'm going to start by reading in verse 5 actually, uh, and then get to our text. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us pictures and handles on which we can understand your love. And this morning, open our eyes to that, um, because that word love is something that kind of easily flows by us and We're not exactly sure how that looks day to day in our life, and we just ask that you would open our eyes freshly, or maybe for the first time, to your display of love and how we experience it. Do that to refresh us and to give us life. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I drove past a digital church sign that displays messages to people passing by. It said, God really loves you, with the emphasis on really. I have mixed feelings about that message being displayed and communicated generally to the public. On the one hand, it's right in a John 3.16 kind of way. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has loved the world by sending Jesus into the world and to the cross so that anyone who believes in him as Savior will be forgiven their sins. It's true. God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of of the truth. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Isaiah said, God spreads out his hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. So yes, we can say that God has a posture of love towards humanity. 
And we need that posture ourselves if we're going to be imitators of God. But on the other hand, such an unqualified statement to everyone that God really loves you can have unintended negative consequences. If you're not a Christian, it might make you think that you're just fine not trusting in Jesus as your Savior because after all, God really loves you right now. And if you are a Christian, it might make you think that God's love for you is not very special because after all, he really loves the non-Christian just like he loves you. And our text this morning corrects both of those concepts of God's love. It says you are not just fine if you don't trust in Jesus as your Savior. And it says if you have trusted him, then you are experiencing right now the love of God in exclusively wonderful ways that the non-Christian is not experiencing. We're going to talk about God's love this morning how he shows it to us, and particularly how we experience it as believers. Paul opened his letter back in chapter 1, and he described believers as those loved by God. (laughs) We're going to see why that's true and how that matters in your life. So if if you're not a believer, I hope you're attracted to this love and want to experience it. For yourself, if you are a believer, I hope you'll experience a revival in your soul, especially if you're going through hard times and the love of God seems like a distant thing. So let me start with the context for the verses we read. I started in verse 5, which says that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul was saying there that the reason that believers know that our hope in Christ is dependable and not misplaced is because the Spirit of God gives us an an internal, even an emotional awareness that God really does love us. But this love is not just a good feeling about God. Rather, God has shown us that love in real concrete actions on our behalf, actions that bring the believer into a relationship with God that is life to us. And that's what verses 6 to 11 explain. It's the basis for that statement that this love of God has been poured out into our hearts. It's because of something real that's happened and what it has communicated and and done for us. That's what verses 6 through 11 are, because it starts with for or because. Let's look at what these verses say. We'll break it up into two parts. The the first part is going to be the proof of God's love. And then the second half is the experience of that love, particularly for believers in Jesus. So let's start with the first one, the proof of God's love. This is verses 6 to 8. So let me read that section again and then work through the important points there. Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the central proof of God's love for us. The greatest act in history that communicates the love of God is that Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. To appreciate the magnitude of that love behind that event, we have to consider our starting point is what kind of people Christ died for? We have to consider who we are naturally. So let's talk about us. Paul uses three words to describe us here, the people for whom Christ died. They are weak, ungodly sinners. Let's, look, let's work through those three words, weak. While we were still weak, he said. Weak is a word meaning lack of strength or ability. Someone with limitations, someone who's debilitated or helpless. But he's not talking here about physical weakness at all. He's talking about people who are, who are debilitated or helpless in a moral sense. This is the person who's helpless to do what God requires of us. As in Romans 3.12, no one does good, not even one. That's who we are naturally, apart from God's intervention in our lives. To put that into a picture, this is like the person whom you just can't trust with money. Uh, you just know that if you give them any, they're going to waste it. <laughs> They're going to blow it on things they don't need. They won't save any of it. And two days later, they're going to be asking you for more. That's what we're like morally before God in our natural state. We're weak. We just don't have the capacity to live the way God wants us to. But it's even worse than that. Paul uses another word, ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Now, that's a strongly negative word. It's about willful rejection of the God who made us. It's about being God-less. Paul put it in Ephesians 2.12 this way, it is being without God in the world. So that says more than the word weak says. Ungodly says that our helplessness to do God's will is rooted in a rejection of God. It's saying, I can do life without him. Or, I don't like the God described in the Bible. I will follow a God more to my liking. To use the previous analogy, this is the person that you can't trust with money, not because they just have a weakness about spending too much, but because they have no intention of using the money for why you gave it. It's about the heart. They know you wanted them to buy food, but they willingly and intentionally spend it on drugs. Morally and spiritually, it's Romans 121. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That's what it means for us to be ungodly. We know he's there, but we won't follow his way. It's a helplessness to do good that's rooted in a rejection of God. And Paul uses a third word, the word sinners. While we were still sinners, 
sinner is someone who violates God's will. Which, of course, is what you're going to do if you're rendered incapable of doing good because of your rejection from God. Of course, you're going to cross the line. Of course, you're going to do your own thing. You're going to say no to the things you should say yes to and yes to the things you should say no to. It just automatically flows from that, that state we're in. And then there's the earned consequence of that kind of life, which we've already seen in chapter 3, the wages of sin is death. It's the eternal death. It's the judgment of God. It's the wrath of God. So summarize all that. What's our condition naturally in the world? We can say this. We are helpless, rebellious violators of God's will who deserve God's wrath. Now, does that description offend you? Do you feel a little pushback in your heart about that? That sounds a little too dark, a little too fire and brimstone-ish. I became a follower of Jesus when I was 19, and prior to that, I would have rejected that description. Because I grew up as a church-going Catholic. I was going to the house of God you might say, I wanted to be a good person. I thought highly of the Bible, though I didn't know what was in it. So if you'd have told me at 16 or 17 that I was helpless, rebellious, violator of God's will on my way to his wrath, I would have been offended. I would have said, that's not me. And yet that's what God's word says we were in our natural state. There's no getting around it. We were weak, ungodly sinners. Why do we need to know that this morning? Here's why. It's because there's no way to appreciate the magnitude of God's love to us if we don't start with that self-understanding. That Jesus Christ would die for you is totally unexpected, totally undeserved, and not what any of us would do naturally. That's the point of Paul's logic in verses 7 and 8. He says, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. In other words, human love, even when it's at its best, could possibly motivate us to die for someone else that we think is worth saving. Soldiers who put their life on the line in war to protect friends and family and their country. Police officers and firefighters who risk death to protect the innocent. We can think of scenarios where for a good person one would dare even to die, but it isn't the norm. One would scarcely do it, he says. Perhaps one might do it. Whenever it happens, that's exceptional. And even when it happens, it is always for someone we consider worth saving. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare it. But here's the wonder of God's love, friends. God said, sent Christ to die for bad people. 
for people who are not worth saving. If I could put it that way. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have to own that description if we're going to experience the emotional impact of Christ dying for us. If we're going to recognize the magnitude of God's love displayed on the cross. In our natural state, we are not good people. We are bad people. The only way that we'll sing with truly grateful hearts the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, is by also singing that saved a wretch like me. But friends, Christ did die for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that act. An indescribable love. Notice the word is not showed, past tense. It's shows, present tense. It's not like there was this thing that happened 2,000 years ago, and that's when he did it. No, he's showing it right now. He's showing it because we're looking at it right now together. And that's what we have to do every day, day by day, is say there's this cross and there's a a result of that cross. It was for me. It was to show God's love to me. And he's showing it again. We always and ever have to look to Jesus and his death on the cross to remember the love of God. It's something he's showing us. Today and tomorrow and the day after that, if we will look there. So, do not look at your circumstances to decide about God's love for you. They are unreliable. You might be a believer in Jesus and your circumstances are hard. And you may think that because they're hard, that God does not really love you. But think about all the saints in the scriptures who had a hard life. They're listed in Hebrews chapter 11. People who were sawn in two. Yet they were the beloved of God. And now they're enjoying the love of God eternally. In fact, think of Jesus, God's beloved son, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do not let your circumstances argue against the love of God. Something happened in history that shows you today the love of God for you. It's Jesus Christ dying for you when you were helpless, rebellious, violator on your way to wrath. And I'll add this. Good circumstances are no guarantee of God's love for you either. You might not be a believer in Jesus, and yet your circumstances may be very good. But if you remain an unbeliever, you are still a helpless, rebellious violator of God's will on the way to wrath. Jesus said, what if a person gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You can do that. 
You can get everything you want in this life and experience wrath, not love. God has certainly expressed his love to the whole world in sending Jesus to the cross. But in order to experience that love in exclusively wonderful ways, you must put your faith in Jesus as the one who saves you from your sins. And that experience of the love is what the rest of our passage teaches us. Because Paul goes on to say what is true of every believer in Jesus what we now enjoy, and what awaits us in the life to come. So let's turn to the experience of God's love. This is in verses 9 to 11. And again, there's three key words here to describe how we experience the love of God as believers. The words are justified, saved, and reconciled. These are your present and future possessions. They are completely independent and untouchable by your circumstances in life. This is how God is loving you right now if you're a Christian. So let's deal with them in order of appearance. First, the word justified, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. I'll stop there. We've been justified by his blood. That's a word we spent a lot of time on in the previous chapters. It's a status that God grants to believers on the basis of faith in Jesus. To be justified means God thinks of your sins as forgiven and counts you as righteous. So to use an analogy, if your record, if your life record of obedience to God was a test, graded on a scale of 0 to 100, God knows that you got a 0. But he gives you a 100. <laughs> he changes your score. He knows you're a helpless, rebellious violator of God. Zero. But he says, but I'm going to give you a 100 anyway. Through your faith in my son Jesus. Now, how God is able to do that and still be a righteous scorekeeper is part of the gospel mystery that's unfolding in Romans, and we'll hear more about it next week. But for now, it's enough to know that God considers the death of Jesus for you as a valid reason to change your grade from a zero to a hundred, provided you receive it by faith. So the first thing that results in God showing his love to sinners is that we're justified or counted righteous. We've studied that at length, so I'm not going to dwell on that here. But this is a good place to deal with a question about how a Christian should think about himself or herself compared to what you were before you trusted Christ. Should you think of yourself as a sinner or as a saint? It's a fair question. Because Paul says, we were sinners, but we have now been justified. So if we are counted as righteous, does that mean we should no longer call ourselves sinners? Well, Paul, who wrote this, called himself a sinner in his first letter to Timothy. 
He said in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom, of whom I am the foremost. Am, present tense, unmistakably in the Greek. And yet Paul knew that God counted him as righteous. So why is he using this word for himself? What should we think about that? I think the best way to explain it is to say that we are saints who sin. <laughs> in other words, who you are now in God's eyes, what is your core identity, is that you are holy in His sight. That's what saint means. Blameless, counted blameless, without fault. He gave you a 100. That cannot change. And on that basis alone, God accepts you completely. But in your experience, you still sin. Because the renovation of our complete person, body, and soul is not complete yet. We still have not learned all the ways of Christ. We still yield to temptation. We don't always operate under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So life for the Christian is about becoming in our experience what we already are in our status before God. We are counted as holy but we are becoming holy in our actual life. Though it doesn't always feel that way. The fact is that the more you mature in Christ, the more you're actually aware of how much you really do sin. Because your perspective changes. You become more alert to what is sin and more aware of how holy God really is. And that gap starts to get bigger and bigger as we get more and more mature and you feel like you're going backwards when in fact you're going forwards. That's why Paul could say he is currently the foremost of sinners because he knew his, his own sin far more than he knew anybody else's sin. We are saints who sin. Sinner isn't our core identity, but it does describe what we do. We are not what we were, but we are not all that we will be either, but we are on the way there. And that leads to the second word that describes how we experience the love of God. It's the word saved. Finishing verse 9, he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved from wrath. That means saved from the ultimate consequences of your sin. Pardoned, accepted by God, no judgment awaiting you. Now, you might notice that saved is in the future tense there. We shall be saved. That could raise a question. But I thought Christians are already saved. I thought that happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 2.5, By grace you have been saved. That's past tense. That's something that happened already, and you're living in the good effect of it. So it's already happened, right? So how can Paul say, we shall be saved? And that's actually pretty easy to explain. Because salvation is a big picture word. It describes everything God does from taking you from the helpless, rebellious, violator of God's will to this perfect human being in the presence of Him forever and ever. In the new heaven and the new earth. So yes, at the time of your conversion to Christ, you can say you were saved. God justified you then. 
but you haven't yet come into your full salvation, which is to be with Jesus in your immortal body in the new heavens and the earth. That's what we call glorification. And that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. We're on our way there because that's the day when your status becomes your experience. (laughs) When being counted righteous becomes you are righteous. (laughs) All the sin removed from you and everybody else and your environment. We're on our way there. And that is guaranteed to you by the love of God. Let that encourage you, especially when your circumstances are not good. Because some days you may feel like that poor beggar on the street who's just like barely getting by. But God's love has put an indescribable fortune in your name. And you will come into your inheritance someday. There's a third word describing how believers experience God's love. And this is the one that Paul repeats the most here. It's the word reconciled. Reconciled. We see it three times in verses 10 to 11. I'll read those again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciled is a wonderful thing to be. It's a relational word that comes to our aid when we are downcast. Because to be justified is amazing and it's necessary, but justified is a legal word. It's a courtroom word, like a signed document that could be given to anyone. It's not quite as personal. Saved is also an amazing thing to be, but it's a big category word that can apply to groups, not just to individuals, like an airdrop of food to a city that's cut off from a, by a flood. But reconciled is intensely personal. Reconciled means that a friendship has been restored. It's what happens when two people who who were friends had a falling out over some offense. They're at odds, but then the offense gets removed somehow. And the issue gets dealt with, and now both sides are in harmony again. There's, there's nothing between them. There's no lingering issue that needs to be dealt with. They're friends again. That's what it means to be reconciled. You've probably experienced that in life. Maybe you said something in a moment of anger, and someone that you love is offended, and there's tension in the room. And maybe you start to avoid each other. You don't like being around each other anymore. You stop making plans together like you used to do. But then one of the people in the relationship takes the initiative to talk about it. And sin is confessed. And forgiveness is extended. And then friendship is restored. Now it's good again. That's what Paul says you experience as a believer with God. 
while you were an enemy, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God is now your friend. And here's how that works. At one time, the whole human race was friends with God. There's only two of them, <laughs> Adam and Eve. But they walked with God in the garden. There was nothing between them and God. It was all good. But then the friendship was broken because Adam and Eve sinned. They, they created an offense between them and God. They did what he told them not to do. Now they weren't on good terms anymore. And that's symbolically and visually displayed by, the, by them being ousted out of Eden. And the, and the angel with the flaming sword is protecting the way. You can't come back in here. There's a separation. There's a break. There's an offense of the sin that now you're not friends anymore with God. And that's been the case with humans ever since because we followed Adam and Eve into sin. And that's an offense that creates an enmity between us and God. But God took the initiative to restore the friendship. He sent his son Jesus into the world to die for our sin, to bear the penalty for us, to satisfy God's justice so that God could now show us love in friendship. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's how God puts away the offense. We were enemies, but God sent his son to bear our sin for us. Now, enemies is another word we might have a problem with. We've already heard our starting point is that we're weak, ungodly sinners. But do you really believe that you are also an enemy of God? When I was 16 or 17, I wouldn't have believed that. I didn't have anything against God that I was aware of. If, in fact, I think I would have had a positive uh, attitude towards him. I even prayed sometimes. I didn't feel like I was an enemy. But that's because I was looking at it from my perspective. But Paul is talking about it from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, we were enemies because we were godless, rebellious violators of his will. We were obstructing his purposes in the world. We were setting ourselves against him and going our own way. That makes us enemies, even though we didn't feel like it. So by all rights, if we're going to be friends with God, we're the ones who should take the initiative we're the ones who should confess our sins and seek forgiveness. We're the ones who should pursue reconciliation. But the problem is we'll never do that in ourselves. Because in our natural condition, we are helpless to do it, and we're rebellious, so we don't want to do it. God has to do it. God has to intervene, or there's not going to be any reconciliation. And there again is the love of God displayed on the cross of Christ. It's God saying, I'll take care of that for you. Even though you did it, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to reconcile you to myself. I'm going to have my son bear the consequences of your sin so that I can take that offense out of the way. Verse 11 says, Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have now received reconciliation. 
In other words, the reconciliation happened on the cross before we had any kind of response to it at all. We receive reconciliation by faith, but it was accomplished on the cross. That's where our offense was dealt with. That's what removed it. That's what created the friendship again. Jesus made God the friend of all who would believe on the cross. And then later on, we receive that through faith. But our faith and our belief did not create the reconciliation. God did it through Jesus. And that makes our reconciliation unbreakable. That makes God's friendship permanent for you as a believer. Makes him your friend today, tomorrow, and forever. There's now nothing between you and God, nothing that needs to be dealt with in order to be in his good graces. He will always be for you, always inclined to hear your prayer, always acting towards you in love. Because it doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what Christ did. We have received reconciliation. It's past tense. It's done. It's, it was done on the cross. And it is not dependent on your mood or what kind of a day you're having. It's fixed. And God is the perfect friend. He's the fulfillment of all that friendship is supposed to be and everything that's described in the scriptures. So he's the friend who loves at all times, as the Proverbs talks about. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the one who laid down his life for his friends. He's the friend of sinners. This is your God believer. This is your everlasting friend. And that's why I said that this particular expression of God's love may be the most encouraging one when you're in a hard spot. Because doesn't having a friend make all the difference in the world when you're going through trouble? It means you're not alone in it. It means there's somebody there to bear it with you. Somebody who cares. Somebody to tell your troubles to. Somebody who's there to help you get through it. God is that friend. Jesus is that friend. So enjoy his eternal friendship. Talk with him. Pour out your heart before him. Get his counsel. Listen to him. Believe his encouragements. Trust his promises. He's not a faithless friend. Faithful one. What he says he will do. Expect him to care about how things are going with you. That's what friends do. And I know that God's love can sound like just words. For some of you, because you suffer hard things, and God hasn't removed those things, and you pray, and it seems like nothing but silence, and God doesn't seem friendly. But remember Proverbs 27, 6, that faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A true friend will sometimes wound you not because he enjoys you being in pain, but because he wants something better for you that only a wound can produce. 
Maybe it's a sinful attitude that he's trying to get your intention about. Maybe he's weaning you off of false hopes that are interfering with the comfort that you could be finding in him. Or maybe it's, it's, he's making you into a model of keeping the faith under trial that God is going to boast about even to the devil like he did with Job. But anything that feels like a wound in your life is a faithful wound from God who is your friend. It's enemies that shower you with kisses who are more interested in your superficial happiness than your eternal happiness. God is a true friend who will always be there for you if you're reconciled to him through the death of his son. So let me just close with this. There is a love that God has for the world, a posture of open arms, whosoever will may come. But only the believer in Jesus experiences that love in an extraordinary way, in the deepest way. Only the believer is justified, declared righteous. Only the believer is and will be saved, glorified with God in the new heaven and earth. And only the believer is reconciled to God, can call God his or her friend. So be reconciled to God if you aren't already. And enjoy that friendship if you are. Let's just pray. Lord, may everyone here who is reconciled feel it. Pour out your love within their hearts by the Spirit, even right now. You know their situations. You know the way that their hearts go here and there. And would, they, would you just reassure your own, your friends, that Jesus died specifically for them, that they, they were the ones you had in mind when you put him there? And if there's anyone, Lord, who doesn't know you, who isn't reconciled, even now, do that amazing work of causing them to believe and to receive this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.